There's taking legitimate responsibility for your own actions, and then there's playing the blame game. The problem is that people today are very allergic to any idea that they have decided even remotely resembles a blame game to the point where they reject legitimate personal responsibility. We're very quick to blame our sins on our husbands, but then we get very offended when it's suggested that we might play even the smallest part in our husband's sins. What does the church say? When I um, talk about women being the crown of creation, specifically about the responsibility of it and the domino effect of the world suffering as a direct result of woman neglecting the heart of man, I often receive accusations from women that I'm saying that wives can be blamed for their husband's sins. When we were going through what I'm just going to start referring to as the dark age of our marriage, my husband and I were living apart, and one of the things that my husband was struggling with was alcoholism. And my fears would keep me up all night. The thing is, there were fears that I was perfectly willing to admit to myself and <laughs> to anyone who would listen. I was afraid that he was drinking. I was afraid that he would lose his job. I was afraid that he would get alcohol poisoning. You know, I, I was afraid of becoming a single mom of two kids. But there was one gnawing fear that I was not particularly willing to admit, even to myself. And that was the fear that I was the reason that he was drinking. You know, many wonderful Catholic women with the absolute best of intentions assured me that my husband's sin was his own and that I could not be blamed for it. But eventually I did recognize this knowing fear as my conscience. And in order for one to conduct an examination of conscience, it's essential to understand what the church teaches in order to have a solid basis for that examination. The church does teach that one can be what's called an accessory to another's sin. Now what I understand of addiction, I understand largely with my husband's help um, and not because either of us are medical professionals. In a nutshell, what I understand again from my husband is that addiction warps the mind so that it cannot reason past a certain point or it can only reason in a certain direction. My husband explains that it's very ritualistic where a substance like alcohol becomes the automatic response to any trigger. He mentioned um, halt. Uh, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And this compromised ability to reason doesn't change the fact that getting to this state takes time and that it started at a point when the individual presumably did have full control of their free will and ability to reason. So all of this is not said to excuse the sin on my husband's part. And again, I, I talk about this with his full knowledge and, and permission. It was undoubtedly sinful to abuse alcohol as he did. But again, this teaching of the church about how 
one can be an accessory to another sin is a teaching which I feel is largely lost or ignored. And again, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I'm trying to share things which I feel are largely lost or ignored. Either that or rejected. And in this case, there's a temptation to reject it because of the serious possibility of then falling into the sin of scrupulosity, which it happens is also something that my husband is very familiar with, something he was made aware of under the guidance of spiritual directors. For him at the time, it was brought on largely by anxiety, which wasn't diagnosed or medicated until after we were married and had two kids. So I'm not dismissing the possibility of scrupulosity at all. But we need to be familiar with both sides of the equation in order to find the balance between them. If we don't understand the teachings we're about to dive into, then the objection that we might end up committing the sin of scrupulosity has the potential to become an excuse for a bad examination of conscience. If you are under the care of a spiritual director, of course you should listen to what he says, because ultimately, if he leads you astray, he answers to God for that. Otherwise, if you are not under the care of a solid spiritual director, and there is no potentially contributing mental health issue, then to assume on your own that you are more in danger of falling into the sin of scrupulosity than you are of making a bad examination of conscience is presumptuous. And my reasons for saying so should become clear here very shortly. In the context of marriage, I think it's especially important to understand this teaching. Precisely because our interactions with one person necessarily increase as a direct result of entering the married state. When women make this accusation that I'm suggesting that wives are to blame for their husband's sins, honestly, what I see is that accusation coming from a place of fear. A fear that I know well and that I really encourage every wife to recognize as their conscience. So to aid in the examination of that conscience, let's dive into what the church teaches. In the 1962 Missal and the Penny Catechism number 329, there are nine ways listed in which, quote, we may either cause or share the guilt of another's sin, end quote. Those nine ways are as follows. One, by counsel. Two, by command. Three, by consent. Four, by provocation. Five, by praise or flattery. Six, by concealment. Seven, by being a partner in the sin. Eight, by silence. Nine, by defending the ill done. I think there is one way listed here that especially deserves our attention as wives, and that is by provocation. The American Heritage College Dictionary, 4th edition, defines provoke as such. Number one, to incite to anger or resentment. Number two, to stir to action or feeling. Number three, to give rise to, evoke. 
Number four, to bring about deliberately. Induce. Now, before we move forward, let's flip the question. Can our husband be blamed for our sins? Some things that I hear all the time from other women, and that I was certainly guilty of myself for saying on an almost daily basis at the lowest point of my marriage, were the following. Of course I'm angry. How can I not be when my husband does this? When my husband does that, I can't help being bitter and resentful. How can I be expected to respect my husband after he did so-and-so? The double standard here is very telling. We women are quick to blame objectively sinful things, anger, bitterness, resentment, disrespect, on our husbands. The language of these excuses that I once made and that I see many women make implies that we don't have a choice in the matter, that it's not a lack of self-control on our part, or that our husband makes it literally impossible to aspire to self-control. But we act shocked and hurt and incredulous if the converse is suggested that we might be playing a part in our husband's sins. And when I say objectively sinful, I mean objectively sinful. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 24 make it clear that wives are commanded to respect their husbands. Quote, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. End quote. This is not a suggestion. And as a side note, I'm so grateful for one particular confessor who asks me if I haven't mentioned anything related. He asks, Have you been obedient to your husband in all things? I love that. Anger, bitterness, and resentment, all of these fall under the sin of unforgiveness. That one we know very well, or we should. Matthew chapter 18, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Right? And then the Our Father. We pray, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. If you're struggling with unforgiveness towards your husband, have you ever asked yourself, what would happen to me if God forgave my, my sins only to the extent that I forgave my husband's? Let's revisit the final point of discussion from last week's episode. This challenge of the woman to make a life of holiness attractive to her husband, so much so that he would be inspired to choose that life of holiness of his own accord, and not out of fear or anger at sinful attempts on the part of his wife to control or manipulate him into a certain type of behavior. You know, this challenge should actually be incredibly encouraging to us. In making a life of holiness attractive to our spouse, we naturally become attractive ourselves. And don't get worked up. I'm not talking about sex appeal. The marital embrace is a natural part of a healthy, happy marriage, but that's not what I'm referring to here. And for me to say so is very easily supported. 
the saints did not aspire to sainthood because of God's sex appeal. Okay, so don't get worked up. That's not what I mean by attractive. Bear with me. If we go back to Ephesians 5 and read the rest of the passage following the excerpt concerning the wife's submission, we see an outline for that life of holiness to which we ought to be attracting our husband. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 5, and now this time we're looking at verses 25 to 33. Quote, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. End quote. Now, when we read that, shouldn't it be so encouraging and uplifting for us? Because what wife wouldn't want that? For their marriage. The life of holiness to which our husband is called by God is one of laying down his life for us, of cherishing us, of prioritizing us, of putting us above and before himself. The nuance of our challenge to help him choose this of his own free will is so beautiful that our reward in faithfully responding to such a challenge should be the devotion of a man who wants to die for us. Not because he must and not because we demand it, but because he loves us so much that he would do so willingly and freely. Let's continue addressing that question. Can we be blamed for our husband's sins? There was one line that I just read there from Ephesians 5. This is verse 30, and it refers to Christ. Quote, because we are members of his body. End quote. So let's review some basic catechesis. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 787. Quote, from the beginning, Jesus associated his disciples with his own life revealed the mystery of the kingdom to them, and gave them a share in his mission, joy, and sufferings. Jesus spoke of a still more intimate communion between him and those who would follow him. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. And he proclaimed a mysterious and real communion between his own body and ours. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. End quote. Also from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 790, quote, Believers who respond to God's word and become members of Christ's body become intimately united with him. End quote. Our existence is contingent upon remaining within the thought of God. He holds us and all of creation together. Moreover, there is no life for us apart from the cross. This truth about the body of Christ and all of us being members of it is the basis for our Catholic understanding of redemptive suffering. That we can make sacrifices which, through some great mystery, is united to Christ's sufferings on the cross, that we can suffer with him and in this way console his suffering heart. But the opposite is also true, that all of our sins hurt Christ. This should not be news to us. Our sins put him on the cross. This is the basic belief of Christianity and that on the cross he bore all sins committed in all times in every corner of the earth. By extension, though, just as our understanding of redemptive suffering includes all members of the body of Christ, just as we understand that our sufferings are offered through Christ for the benefit of all members of his body, this means that our individual sins have a hurtful effect on every member of the body of Christ. We have no way of knowing what that looks like. We can't necessarily see it all the time. We will probably never understand how much our sins have hurt the other members of Christ's body. But it should be enough to know that they do. We shouldn't need to know the particulars of how or to what extent or to what degree or if I should be able to see it or if I am able to see it. It should be enough to know that it hurts others. And honestly, I am, I am sorry if I begin to sound like a broken record, especially for those with excellent catechesis, but I, I want to make one more stab at clarity here because I am honestly very alarmed and appalled at the number of Catholics who take offense at this truth that their sins hurt Christ and the entire body of Christ. Christ did not die for himself. He did not die because of any sin that he himself had committed. He was thoroughly without sin. So he did not die for himself and he did not die for nothing. The suffering and death that our Lord endured were due exclusively, not partly, exclusively to the sins committed by sinners, of which he was not one. You and I are sinners. You and I have committed sins. Our sins nailed Christ to the cross. When we enter into the life of Christ, when we are baptized into his body, we share in his sufferings. And we cannot share in his suffering without sharing in the reason for that suffering. When we suffer with Christ, we suffer because of each other's sins. This truth about our sins as well as our triumphs having some effect on every member of the body of Christ is a truth that if you compound it with a truth that's specific to our situation as a married person, 
we are one flesh with our spouse. This means that our sins and our triumphs affect our spouse for good or ill more than they affect any other member. There exists a sacramental proximity to our spouse that doesn't exist between us and any other person. Again, it was right there in Ephesians 5 verse 31, which is actually St. Paul quoting Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Quote, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. End quote. As we talked about last week, once we enter into this state of being one flesh with our husband, we can never stop. We can never back out. We can never opt out of this state of being. The accusation directed at me was that I'm saying that a wife can be blamed for her husband's sins. I've covered this in two parts, and the answer is both yes and no. And only you can determine where you fall. Yes, based on the nine ways we talked about at the beginning, that, quote, we may either cause or share the guilt of another's sin, end quote. Specifically through provocation. If we have objectively, through our poor treatment of our husband, made holiness more difficult for him to reach for, then we may very well be guilty of provocation and be considered an accessory to his sin if there was a sin which followed on his part. If we were disrespectful, if we spoke disrespectfully towards him, if we treated him harshly or coldly out of some harbored anger or bitterness or resentment on our part, and his response to our disrespect or unforgiveness is sinful, then yes, we are partly to blame. And on the other hand, no, in the absence of such interactions. But our sins which we commit still have a negative effect on our husband, also making holiness harder for him to reach for. Because of the sacramental proximity of being members of the body of Christ, and on top of that, one flesh, through the sacrament of matrimony, our husband bears the weight of the consequences of our sin in his flesh, as if it was his own. We don't know how, we don't know to what extent the damage is, because we frankly have no concept of how much each of our sins damages us. But that doesn't matter. If we love our husband, it should be enough to know that when we sin, our husband is negatively affected. And really, we acknowledge this very quickly when the opposite is talked about. For example, if your husband struggles with pornography, you know that you feel the consequences of his sin in yourself. You know that. So it's nothing to get offended about to say that the opposite is also true. If you are harboring unforgiveness against your husband, If you are disrespectful of him, not only in your words, but also in your very mind, he feels that 
he's affected by it, he bears the weight of that. Because all of those negative attitudes are sinful attitudes on your part. If that doesn't make sense to you because our sins are forgiven in the confessional, yes, our sins are forgiven in the confessional, and our soul no longer has to suffer the punishment for those sins in purgatory. But we absolutely bear the long-term consequences of our sins in our flesh, even after they are forgiven. Consider the use of illegal drugs. If you confess that sin, yes, you're absolutely forgiven, but your body doesn't shed the physical effects of that drug just because you've brought the sin to the confessional. Your flesh will continue to suffer in the normal way. And again, going back to the sin of pornography, if you have struggled with this in any way, you know that even though God has forgiven you, the consequences of having used it once remain in you in the form of making it harder for you to resist the temptation to use it again. Two weeks ago, we talked about the service we vowed to render unto our husband when we entered into the sacrament of matrimony, of helping to bring our husband to heaven. Last week, we talked about the nuance of that challenge, which exists specifically for women as the crown of creation. Today, we discuss this question of whether or not we can be blamed for our husband's sins. When I've talked about the weight that our actions have on our husband's soul, I've been told that I'm making women's lives harder. The problem with that accusation that I'm making women's lives harder is that everything I've talked about today is right there in the Catechism and Sacred Scripture. In short, I'm not being accused of heresy. And if it's distasteful to anyone, it's not something that I can apologize for. This is the teaching of the Church. And it is absolutely essential that we understand it and embrace it if we are to aspire to be saintly wives. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you, and we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.